Bonjour, hi, I'm Pascal Auclair. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. J'espère que cet enseignement vous sera aidant. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed. Vous pouvez me soutenir en cliquant sur le bouton sous ma photo. Your support is greatly appreciated. Merci. You feel free to, um, you know, release the posture if that can be uh, helpful for you. So again, we're developing this very particular kind of attention. Huh? Attention to what is happening now. An attention that is... Um, that we invite, that we want more and more uh, stable, that is non-reactive, not looking to acquire anything, but just to connect with what is happening, to feel it well, more deeply. And the more we practice, we get more sensitive, but both sensitive and balanced, you know, more able to receive data. So mindfulness is a kind of a data-collecting device that we're building in ourselves, so we can actually be touched by things, hear things, feel things more clearly. And the more we practice, the more it feels like this. I mean, there's days where we're more on and off, like it's not, but we can feel like, oh, the contour of things, like the precision, it's more, oh, we feel really, before it was like, yeah, breathing, you know, and then it's like, oh, oh, that expansion, I feel it really well, this mass of heat that is expanding or or this contraction, or the pulling, or the, ah, suddenly I feel the cloth, cloth, cloth on the belly. I, it was there before, but now it's appearing inside mm-hmm. into clothes. <laughs> you know, suddenly we're like, so things starts to become outstanding when we pay attention. And uh, so what we're doing is we're tuning in, we're calming the mind, and we're awakening it. So it's a mixture of calm and energy strange little mixture, beautiful, best quality of heart-mind, a mind that is both calm but tuned in, awake, vivid, you know, that can feel stuff. And, and so doing this, what would happen? What would happen is that we would start to discover maybe, with a help, little help from a friend, <laughs> What would start to appear would be the four noble truths. We would start to see this in experience. Today we're going to talk a little bit about them, about the first one, certainly. And, uh, and by the way, remember that there's f- three more, because <laughs> that's the kind of bad news that comes first. <laughs> but uh, uh, so in the, in the practice of meditation, we actually get to know this for ourselves, clarify this for ourselves. That's the whole path. Uh, is a clarification of the four noble truths or ennobling truth, we could say, or liberating truth. Or as uh, Stephen Batchelor, one thinker, uh, names them, the four noble tasks, I think he names them. It's, like it's not so much a st- statement, but something to be uh, engaged with, something to realize, to develop, to cultivate. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to throw some little ideas about, uh, about uh, the first noble truth and see as, you, um, as you're listening, 
I would invite a kind of um, uh, meditative listening. It doesn't mean you have you could decide to be in a formal, even eyes closed, as if you were in meditation. You could decide to do this, but uh, a particular kind of listening where. Uh, Maybe it's more embodied. Maybe you allow yourself to be aware of the breath and be, you know, not just here in the coconut, but, you know, put the consciousness or the intelli- your intelligence in an elevator and let it come down here, come down here, come down here, and listen maybe from there, like a more... In a, let's see what happens if you do something like that. And so... Um, the first noble truth is very central in Buddhist uh, thinking. It's actually the, the core of the teaching. It's also the first teaching that the Buddha seemed to have uh, given. Yeah. And uh, after clearing up the heart, which is something uh, in a way that can be touching. You think of a, a human being, a regular, you could think of a regular human being that decides to clarify uh, to detoxify, we could say, the heart and clarify the vision, to, to, to remove any ignorance and confusion about things. So somebody did this 2,600 years ago. They sat and they didn't shy away from the job, you know. They could have thought, oh, nobody's done this before. How could one do this, you know? And they're like, I'm actually going to do this. I have senses, I, you know, I have a sensitive <coughs> mind and heart. I'm actually going to tune in and see really how things are. And uh, so the four truths are an, exp- an expression maybe of this. Yeah. And uh, after having done this job, it seems like uh, the Buddha had this reflection where they were thinking, uh, this is too, too hard to see, too hard to accept or understand although incredibly liberating to discover and understand, it's also really hard to see. This is going to be really aggravating for me to actually go around and try to pass on this information. Maybe I should just stay here and enjoy the clarity of the mind or the expensiveness of the heart and just not bother because it will be trouble for me and for others to listen to me. But apparently something else came in them and that was like, actually... People can hear that, and some people will understand this and will recognize something in that, and it will be of value for them. And so the Buddha walked maybe a hundred miles. My estimation of the distance is really rough here, between Bodh Gaya and uh, uh, Sarnath, uh, Varanasi. Yeah? And uh, to go see old friends who were uh, practitioners uh, years back. and. Uh, came and offered this, uh, talked about what they had discovered. So you imagine somebody like made, had an insight, profound insight, and they could feel inside their heart like how impactful it was. And they were like, let me share this with my friend. And going that moment of going to see the friend and say, friends, you know, we've been looking for a long time, haven't we? I, I touched something. I want to tell you about it. And the others really listening in. They're like, wow. We can see something's happening. There's something, there's some aliveness that is there, something almost glowing kind of a thing, almost, or maybe. But you can imagine, you know, something, somebody that's charged with, uh, with uh, you know, s- 
or discharged from the confusion, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, clear mind, heart. And so they paid attention. And to me, it's so beautiful. I, I touched my computer <laughs> because the text I was reading this morning is there, in there. And at the end of the discourse, I, when the, I mean, we say discourse, but it was basically uh, somebody giving a report on what they had discovered. It was friends talking together, you know, and one, one, sh one sharing, you know. And at the end, one of the one of the friends listening, they they got it. You know, they really heard, they deeply heard, not just, oh, yeah, I got the idea, interesting, I should work on that, you know, but really like, oh, my God, that touched me so deeply. And the Buddha recognized that Kondonya had uh, understood, and he says in the text, again, I was reading it, and he says uh, something like, twice he repeats the sentence, and he says, Kondonya got it. Kondonya got it, he got it. Like, I think the Buddha himself seemed to be surprised and deeply touched that actually you can actually pass this stuff on, you know, through language, through communication. And maybe also we could imagine that Kondonya had done their work, you know, their mind was really tuned in, you know. They had, they had, they had uh, brought a lot of uh, calm to their mind and a lot of attention. So that when the Buddha was talking, it was not just like, yeah, yeah, I know, but uh, I'm thinking about lunch, you know, or, or I'm wondering how they perceived me, the people I met earlier today, and, you know, like being kidnapped or half kidnapped by something else, you know, but actually had trained uh, himself, Condonia, to actually be really present. It's like, oh, this guy's about to share something very precious. Let me really be there. You know, let me tune in and was able to do that. And uh, then the power of the, the teaching uh, went through, and there was something recognized. So, wow, I'm kind of putting the bar pretty high for us here, <laughs> on both sides of reality. <laughs> so, I'm not the Buddha. <laughs> but still, the truth, the truths are there. This, this stuff is there for us to consider deeply. And so this uh, first noble truth, uh, often we, uh, the way it's described is that the Buddha was like a doctor and he was uh, saying, the way of describing the four truths is actually um, talking about the symptoms, what is the problem, and uh, talking about the cause, what causes it, that's the second noble truth. The third one is the prognosis, what can we do with this? You know? And the last one is actually the prescription, we could say. So there's this problem of suffering, insatisfaction, uh, and there is a cause to it, and it's possible to actually remove the cause completely. That's what he's saying in this uh, encounter with his friends. It's like there is a complete end possible to confusion, to stress, to uh, uh, dissatisfaction, to suffering of the mind, you know. It's possible. And here's the path. Yeah. And so this first noble truth is the truth of uh, how it's transcribed often is the truth of suffering. And... Um, the weight resonates more for me that it seems more true in the studies I've done in the inner uh, exploration and the conversation with my teachers. And is that 
what he's saying is there is unsatisfactoriness. There is there is this experience we have probably several times a day and check again in yourself if it's true where things are not exactly as you would want them to be. Sometimes there's almost there but not exactly there. There's just one little thing missing. Sometimes you're, you feel completely separated from what you would want. And this is at any level in any ways. Relationally, we can recognize this maybe. We would like the other one to see us a little bit more like this or to take a little bit more time or to something, you know. Often it's internally. We can divide this in two internally. That would be one way. It's a, maybe about the mind and heart. You know, we would like to feel a certain way, but it's not exactly this. Or if it is, maybe I get, yeah, now let's go there now. Maybe if it is, if we feel good, we might even have a slight little uh, sense that it might not last, or that it, it's uh, unstable, that it could be disrupted. You know, like the days going, I had a partner, the adorable man, and uh, we were together for 10 years, and is a good friend now, and there was something so sweet uh, <laughs> now, I think about it, but so many times I heard this uh, good friend now say, my day, like with a kind of a sadness or a kind of disappointment, it's like, oh, my day started so well, you know, like, I woke up, I felt refreshed, and I was having breakfast, and, you know, it's a beautiful day, and then, you know, this person called, or then there was this, the car had the ticket on it, or then you, Pascal, <laughs> did or didn't do that, or say or didn't say that, you know, but there would be like this, ah, you know, and, and it was always like, wow, Duca, you know, it's like, it's, and there was always this kind of like uh, being disappointed by life, you know, like uh, uh, as we are all, I think I can certainly include myself in it, like this incapacity to recognize that life is a little, uh, from our point of view, is a little like, um, we have this great word in French, I don't think it exists in English, is bancal. You know, when the chair is not, you know, every time you go to a cafe, you get this table. That, you know, it's like, or if you don't get the table, you get the chair. Your friend gets the chair, you know. And, and then the, the waiter, waitress comes and like, oh, let me try to arrange this. And, and it's, it's like, so uh, the, the truth of dukkha, dukkha is the word that is used in Pali, of the first noble truth, the Buddha was saying, there is dukkha. There is dukkha. There is the incapacity for life to satisfy us in big ways that are recognizable when people don't say what we want them to say, don't do what we want them to do. Population, cultures, institutions. You know, we experience this, no? Like, oh my God, like, I, like it's so, it takes time to do this thing in this institution. It could work so more faster, you know? Then everything would work, you know? Or anything else that you could think of. And internally the same thing. You know, we want to feel a certain way and it's a little crooked, maybe I could say, a little off balance in some way. And it's not exactly this. Or physically, like you sit here. And this is why we practice uh, meditation, because we want to sit in the middle of dukkha. Dukkha. Not that we want to sit in the middle of misery and suffering. We want to sit in the middle of life as it is, with sounds coming in when they 
we would like not to, or when the heat is like this, when we would like a little more like that, or when the body feels like this, when we would like it to be just like that, you know? But it's not, it's a little like this, or at one area, if only that, you know, lower left side was. You know? And so, and the Buddha, uh, that's why I think partly Stephen Batchelor calls it uh, the noble task, because the Buddha is inviting us to actually understand, notice, become acquainted, intimate with dukkha. He's not saying, run away, you know, try to make everything perfect all the time, you know. No, this is extremely stressful because it's going to fail. You know, one has at least to understand somewhat that it's actually going to fail, and yet, still I'm going to tend towards comfort, security, pleasant, but it's actually not going to work because hair will fall. You know, diagnosis will land at some point. It will, you know. Somebody will get hurt. Some, something's going to be misunderstood. You know, tell the battery will die. <laughs> you know, there'll be something happening several times a day. And the invitation is to wake up to this and say, is that possible to live in such a reality that is imperfect from a human perspective? You know, you would say, like, oh, my God, I would like to be uh, efficient all the time, and I'm actually not. You know, for some reason, I'm not efficient. I would like people to love me all the time, and so they don't, you know. Even sometimes, you know, you feel like I'm, I look at crowds a lot when I talk, and I'm like, wow, everybody loves me, except maybe that person. <laughs> God, almost, you know. And if it looks like it for a few minutes, then I look, and somebody will fall asleep. And I'm like, ah. In my talk, you know? <laughs> and so the practice is to wake up in the middle and it's like, oh, again, it's like uh, sand in your hand, you know, it's always slipping, you know? And so one time here in Montreal, I don't know if you guys know this trans, uh, uh, trans theater, uh, trans theater, the, this um, it used to be called the Festival de Théâtre des Amériques. Anyway, mm -hmm. Yeah? So I've been, that's been my best festival for decades, and I've seen the most beautiful things there. If you don't know about it, you could find out about it. They pay people to search the entire world for the best plays and bring them to Montreal for two weeks every year in May. And I've seen amazing things that have really helped my uh, mind open and my heart open. But one particular night, maybe 15 years ago, there was a, a theater company from England called uh, Forced Entertainment. <laughs> it's already like there's a kind of like information in the title, in the, in the company's name. And they were actually doing just that, doing a kind of lab theater, like research theater, that, that would be my way to, to describe this, you know, kind of. Uh, and they were exploring the nature of entertainment. What are the edges of it? What is entertaining and what is not? <laughs> Which is interesting, uh, anthropologically maybe to do like oh that's in we uh, we put a lot you know we we value a lot in being entertained you know and wh where is the edge of it? And so one of the things they did when the show the kind of six hour long show started, talk about the edge of entertainment. <laughs> you know <laughs> it was reached many times for me. <laughs> uh, but this person came uh, on stage and they said um, it was in the 
Théâtre National in Saint Laurent, and they said to the crowd, I don't know how many, hundreds of people, they said, oh, welcome everyone. Uh, tonight we're going to entertain you, so you can just relax and enjoy. The evening is going to be an evening full of entertainment. So please, please do not think of anything that is difficult in your life. Do not. Don't. Like, don't. Don't. I mean, really mean it. Like, for example, uh, don't think about uh, here on St. Laurent Street, corner of St. Catherine, in the whole of Canada, the insurance companies say it's the worst place to park a car. <laughs> so if you've parked in the area, please do not think about this, you know, because that's going to mess with your entertaining night, you know. And then this person proceeded to name things like this for like 20 minutes or more. And they, were, and they went into every difficulties of the relational uh, aspect of our lives, you know, familial, uh, uh, health-wise, uh, mental health, uh, emotions, and they kept going and people keep, kept leaving the room, you know. You could see people disappearing, like there was like, it, it didn't work for them, but they kept going, you know. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, oh my God, they must be Buddhists, you know, <laughs> to be so interested in dukkha, in what doesn't work, you know. And so I was left with this impression and the show kept going on and, and it was, it was, it was, they were really going to the edges. And later, after maybe a few days after, suddenly I realized, I thought, oh my God, they were naming just a third of dukkha. Although it seemed like an exhaustive list, because they really went for it, you know. Uh, I was like, oh, that's only one third if you ask a, a real Buddhist. <laughs> they just went 33% in, you know. Because they forget another part, which is everything that is pleasant. That's how far the Buddha was going. It was like, I'm not going to make it like, like, yeah, life is hard sometimes, but you know, it's so good. He was saying like, listen, check it out for yourself. But even what is good has dukkha in it because it ends. And sometimes when it ends, we notice the dukkha aspects of it because, oh, this lovely weekend with these friends, you know, is gone. You know, and we feel melancholy. And so we, we're hit by that. But sometimes even while being in the things, and actually often I see this in people, oh my God, it's so fun, it's so fun. Where's my camera if that person was there? Or, you know, like, I can't believe we took only that evening. We should have gone a whole week. You know, there's, there's some... We want to extend it, you know, if somebody at work says, like, wow, really good work you did. And inside it, you can't actually let it land because you're like, is everybody going to see it? Only this person? Or, like, now I have to keep up. Like, it's not easy to, like, will they keep seeing me like a good, you know? Do you recognize this? Anyway, it's good to actually pay attention, to notice these moments where you say, wow, uh, when you feel the fragility of, of uh, life, you know, some uh, friends of mine uh, were, um, were uh, barring my house, going in my house for a few days. And just before, the last email I sent was like, oh, be careful with this and this and this, because I was thinking of the children and, like, how they could not notice this and hurt themselves with this, or, like, I should have removed that. And, and, and I was like, oh, look at that again. The dukkha, you know, everybody's healthy, everybody's happy, and I'm actually aware that 
things can turn. You know, things are, you know, it, it's life is fragile. You know, and uh, and this is just me being the friend. You know, I can imagine a parent. You know, what it is like for a parent to live with not knowing. You know what it is like to, you know, raise a young girl. You know, that's going to be a teenager soon. You know, and the fears around this of the fragility of life and you know and so the Buddha was pointing to he was saying like wow if I'm really honest I have to say that even things that are beautiful have a little something in them we're not sure they're actually going to happen before you know if there's something you want it's hard to actually get it if you don't get it it's hard if you get it it's the second hardest <laughs> version because then you have to keep it protect it you fear for it you know you wanted that thing, you get it, and now you fear somebody else is going to scratch it or use it or take it, you know? Or is it going to be stable? You know, we work hard to get money and then we put it in the bank and we're like, oh my God, but you know, the market this and Volkswagen that, and you know, <laughs> and the whole thing is shaky, you know? So it's not even clear that if we do have money in the bank, that it's going to be the same amount tomorrow. It's not absolutely clear at all, you know? Things can switch so quickly. So it includes even what is beautiful. And the Buddha was saying actually everything that is made of something conditional, because of its condition, it's actually shaky. Because it relies on different conditions to appear, it's very uncertain. So Ajahn Chah, another wise being, would always say this. He would say, maybe that was his translation of uh, Dukkha. He would say, Things are uncertain. Things are uncertain. Wow. And so, this practice of meditation is asking us to actually turn towards something that we would like not to see. We would like to be different. And it's saying like, no, turn. Because turning away, resisting, avoiding, telling another story is actually really hard. It's exhausting. So turn around and see how things are impermanent. They're shaky. That the inside of you is as uncontrollable as the outside of you, the circumstances. You won't be able to control the aging. Maybe a little bit, you know, just go down a little slower. <laughs> you know, I was listening to somebody today uh, giving a talk, Jill. I forgot her name. I was listening to her for the first time, Jill. D. And uh, she was saying, sometimes I like, I, she said, I know better not to look in the mirror, but sometimes I still <laughs> run into a, a reflection of me, you know? And I'm, and I'm always like, wow, why, why is this face down there? <laughs> like, it's supposed to be like a few inches up. <laughs> you know, why is it going down? Anyway, she made me laugh. So there's this uh, uncontrollability of like the, the weak. It's not to say that we can't participate, contribute, tend towards, help, care, etc. Uh, with our mind and heart but, and body, but we don't get to decide, as you know. So internally, we don't get to decide exactly what's going to happen. You know, you, you think, you, you know, it should be a calm uh, meditation. Everything is good, and then you sit there, and the mind is all like this, caused maybe by the coffee, the this, that, you know, who knows, you know. 
but uh, so the uncontrollability so we're asked to turn towards this in meditation and when I say meditation is the formal meditation just sitting here not moving for a little while will reveal this <coughs> no? you don't move we have a different amount of time but some at minute 7 some at minute 17 at some point dukkha is being revealed you know because suddenly it starts to pulsate in a s some way, you know, or press in some way, or s it's just you reach your normal, natural time for meditation. Now you would r like to ring the bell, but it's somebody else who owns the baton, <laughs> you know? And so you're not going to have the control over when it finishes. Or it rings and you're like, oh my God, I was just getting there. What are you doing? Uncontrollable dukkha. <laughs> You know, so we're invited to actually note this. So, uh, and one of the things that happen when we do is that we allow the heart to open. We allow ourselves to be in reality, not in, it shouldn't be like this, uh, I don't want it to be like this, I want to, you know, I fit, you know. We just land here. This is very, it can be very relaxing. It's not easy to do. But it's possible to do this it seems to say in the teaching that it's actually the best strategy. And sometimes we need to do this very uh, carefully, progressively. And the system is good. You know, if it's not the time, it'll, it'll find a coping mechanism. Busy, no sitting, no looking at, too, too many things to do, busy, 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 you know. And at some point, like, oh, maybe now I can actually sit with this and feel the grief of having a life that is not exactly the life we would have liked for a human being, you know, for this human being. Like. Maybe it's about the past, you know, this hope for a better past, you know, that we can lose, you know, so this is how it was. The uncertainty of the future, yeah? Because turning away from dukkha also means fearing the unpleasant and looking always for the pleasant, the stability, it's exhausting. It's like constantly running away from one, looking for the other, you know, all the senses as radar to organize a life that is going to be, wow, really tiring. And here what we do is we do this radical practice of sitting in the middle of life as it is. And we might find that actually it's possible to be with it totally. That's the other truth. What they're saying is actually there's a way to actually be in the middle of this life without in it um, bringing a mental suffering, what we often call the second arrow, as many of you know. Buddha says, oh, you know, he, he was 80-some uh, years old, had a really bad foot, he had had an accident, had a bad back, and some very beautiful... Uh, uh, sutras, um, you know, document of the time, you see that uh, Ananda, the, good, the cousin and good friend of the Buddha, is uh, they're both in their 80s, and uh, Ananda is messaging uh, the Buddha's back. You know, and sometimes the Buddha says, Ananda, would you finish this conversation for me, you know, here tonight by the river with these folks? Because you know, I can't, my back is killing me. And he would go lay down, and Ananda would finish the conversation with the people who came. Um, you know, ask questions about life and wisdom. And so it's not like there was no back ache or no foot ache. You know, there was. 
but there was a profound tenderness towards life. Life is like this. There was not like, why me? It shouldn't, you know? There was just like, wow, let me open to the truth of that. Let me open fully to a body that is falling apart. Let me open fully to, you know, like when the two best friends of the Buddha died, the Buddha says in one of the sutras, he says, somebody asked him how it is for him to have lost the two best friends, and he said it's like the moon and the sun has left uh, the orbit, have left the, the sky, you know, the earth. Which, you know, is not saying like, wow, all is, it's like, wow, losing people feels like this, you know. But there's not the second arrow. It shouldn't be like this. Why is it happening to me? There's no why it's happening to me, because this happens. This is how it is. Everything will be lost. Everything that we gather, that we make happen, that happens for us, will end. And we're invited to consider this, contemplate this, so bring thoughtfulness to this, think about this, but we're also, and that's what meditation does, we're also invited to tune in and, I want to say silently, experience this directly when something falls apart. Oh, look at that. Stay there, because often we'll move to the next thing, or we'll get stuck, or we'll move to the next thing. Like, stay here. Oh, this just finished. Let me be acquainted with endings, for example. Or staying, if it's something that you would like to go, but it doesn't. Let me actually be there with the staying of this thing. Uncontrollability. It's there. I don't want it, but it's there. Let me be here, instead of shutting down, you know, getting reactive. Let me be there. As I understand, I can't control this thing. Let me stay fully embodied, breathing. Let this event uh, help me uh, calm the mind. Uh, develop presence, a fullness of presence, instead of shying away or shutting down or lashing out. Yeah? Again, this is a practice. I wouldn't want it to sound like utopia. You know? This is what we call a practice. We have lifetimes, apparently, to do this. So... Maybe I could finish in with um, Ajahn Chah that I was naming earlier, saying things are uncertain. He would also talk about two kinds of dukkha. He would say there's one kind of dukkha that brings more dukkha. And there's one kind of dukkha that releases dukkha, that is liberating. So what's the difference between these two? The difference seems to be the dukkha that we actually turn towards with mindfulness, with attention, with care, with uh, tuning in, with uh, even interest. Let me actually be there for this. So Ajahn Shah was saying, if you either uh, maybe sink or swim, you know, if, you're, if you don't want to meet it, you resist it, it's gonna... There's another teacher the other day who was saying this, I thought it was so clever, I don't know if it's exactly mathematically true, but he was say, they were saying, um, if you, um, you know, there's the difficult event, 
And it's not plus your reactivity, it's multiplied by your reactivity. So maybe the event is 8 out of 10, 8 on 10 in terms of it, the hardness of it. And then multiply it by your reactivity. If your reactivity is a 1, that's going to be that. But if your reactivity is 8, then that's going to make it whatever the number comes out when you do 8 times 8. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so I thought that was a good description of this factor. So that's why, and uh, very important not to blame oneself. Like, I should let go, I should let go, I'm not that, you know. What we do, and it's, that's the skill of uh, meditation practice, is to learn to not judge and not also give in this, this stuff. So learn to accompany oneself in reactivity, non-acceptance, and shutting down. And, and so, and that will happen again and again. Or... At some point, it will happen where the mind won't be able to take in what's happening, you know. And so, what's what are we going to do? Judge ourselves on top of it? No, we're going to have to be extremely compassionate. Of course, my love, there's none. You can't accept this. You know, it's not possible right now. This is how it is. Oh, of course, you're totally. I remember something happened to me a few years ago. I was losing something that was very dear. And my whole, even physically, you know, kind of like, it got stuck, you know. And I was like, okay, I wanted to move, <laughs> but it was not moving. It was just like stuck, like I could feel it. Mostly, almost, I would say physically, like, like, uh, hello, how are you? You know, like, it's, it doesn't come, it doesn't, I can't digest this thing, you know, like, I don't, it doesn't work. And my job was really clear to me, it was like, Pascal, you need to accompany this being that is all like rigid right now, you know, like you can't demand anything from them, you know, you just have to be there, allow, maybe make it move a little bit, you know, and mm -hmm. try to accompany it and be really caring for this being self, you know. Uh, and then one day, that's the kind of the funny sorry part, but one day I was in the Actually, uh, I come to a board meeting, <laughs> so there's all these it's administrative work, like there's eight people that I see really rarely, and it's the board meeting, and we're all there, and somebody says, and how are you, Pascal? And then suddenly, the valve opened. <laughs> I'm like, wrong place. <laughs> and everybody's like, oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, give me a minute, give me a minute. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I was hoping for that, but not here. <laughs> not now, but that's dukkha. You know, you don't get to decide, apparently, or I didn't, certainly. Um, yeah. So I wonder if there are any um, questions or comments about this, some things that seems... Uh, Anything that you would want to name or explore further or bring in? Do you recognize some things in that? <laughs> mm. The human predicament. When you were speaking about um, Buddha talking about Dukkha, and, and then you also said, well, he, he didn't just turn to dukkha, but also to what is pleasant. Yeah. To the side of life where we have these experiences yeah. and we recognize that in ourselves. Yeah. 
where there is pleasure, where there is enjoyment. Yeah. And, there is. and then you spoke about it as how and then we start to see that it changes and so the deeper comes in. Can you say something about when we're recognizing uh, in the enjoyment phase that uh, sometimes that's also hard to experience. Yes. Before it even starts to dissolve, like yeah. there's something in the mind, there's something in us, we recognize it. And to how to, you know, how, what the teachings are around being mm. with that. Yeah. And how it fits into. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so here, exactly, we're not saying there's not enjoyment in this, in this way we're presenting life. There is enjoyment. There's all kinds of beauty, you know, through art, connection. I mean, all the senses will offer their uh, different uh, levels of pleasure, like slight, little subtle pleasures and huge, amazing uh, pleasures and beauty. And, all kind of, and in the mind, you know, the, some qualities of the mind are extremely beautiful. And, yeah. And I think that half of the job, in a way, is to actually, uh, you know, when there's the teachings uh, uh, about the right effort in practice, half of, the, half of the practice is actually to recognize the enjoyment and learn how to enjoy it uh, wisely. And the second noble truth that we'll talk about the, the next time is going to be all around this, around how the mind will grasp, you know. So something is going to finish, and already we can't experience it fully because we know it's going to... F- so there's a, that's the second noble truth. The cause of our difficulties is the grasping. And so sometimes in pleasure, there'll be the grasping, you know. You know, they're there, are they going to stay there? You know, like there's a resistance to impermanence, and it's in the mind, and the mind is grasping so much so that we can't enjoy what is beautiful because the mind is already n- fearing the disappearance. And so what we're talking about is a full acceptance. Of course it's going to uh, disappear. And of course I'm not going to actually control exactly when in most of the cases. you know. But a deep, deep recognition of this, that uh, that's what uh, often is called the sure heart's release. What happens, wisdom is a deep recognition of the impermanent nature of reality. Wisdom is actually very precise in Buddhist thought. Wisdom is, you know, when we think of wisdom in a large way, we say, oh, wisdom is actually not hurting others, not hurting oneself, uh, contributing to whatever we're part of, you know, in a wise way. Uh, That is an outcome. How we get to wisdom in Buddhist practice is by noticing impermanence by noticing intimately the changing, dynamic nature of everything, how things appear and disappear, and why would we put attention on the belly rising and falling, so that we get intimate with the fact that things actually arise and fall, literally. And we get to feel it really, really well. And in the feeling this, we'll also notice the rise of attention and the fall of attention, of sustained, you know, of high-quality attention. At some point... I was really there, belly rising and falling, and at some point, whoops, I was not interested anymore, you know. So mind state arises, or I was really there, and suddenly I thought about something I forgot to do today. And it appeared, and then whoops, I'm back with the breath. And it disappeared. So we want to actually see in action this process of thoughts arising, passing, emotions arising, passing, and so that we get so touched by it that there's this 
thing called the sure heart's release that is the kind of a, the promise of the practice in a way you know and when the heart is released we know so well that things are impermanent that when beauty appears you know at the ear door the eye door in the mind or in the in the community or something we can actually deeply uh, recognize feel it and know the preciousness because ephemeral you know and then there's a fullness of it oh my god this is so beautiful because and so precious because it's going to pass but it doesn't lead to cynicism or grasping or like oh my god they teach me it's going to pass you know it's like wow it is going to pass let me be so there for it so there because this is a dreamlike ephemeral it's appearing and will vanish and we can notice as we listen to this you can notice and oh no i don't want things that are beautiful to go you know this is the second truth we're touching if that happens you know a kind of a squeezing of the heart don't say that it passes <laughs> or every i'm okay with everything but not this one thing that i keep hide, hidden in my heart as you're talking don't touch that you know that too that too and what we want to do is release the heart around it so that it can live fully and be known fully and yes vanish in the practice of meditation, this, uh, this uh, vanishing, this appearing and vanishing, we see, we want to see in a penetrative way, it means that we want to see it everywhere in our experience, that it can penetrate this vision, this perception of impermanence can penetrate everything. So, and sometimes the way we get full is we'll think, oh, I see it everywhere, sounds, breath, everything that seems to be objects, you know, and then you say, "Yeah, but turn around," and even what you would call the observer or the witness is also impermanent. You know, the moments of consciousness arise and pass. The moment where you were coming up the stairs, where there was a you coming up the stairs, gone. You know? So, we we pay attention, we tune in more and more so that we can actually see the disappearance of mind states, of consciousness, of intelligence, of uh, moments of uh, cognition also disappear. So there's nothing in the field. It's not just the field you're looking at, but it's like 360 in out, you know, that is impermanent. That's a very deep uh, teaching. Once one gets this, they seem to not get cynical or afraid or grasping there might be a little uh, passage where like, oh my God, you know. Uh, but once it's uh, understood clearly, it seems to be extremely liberating so that uh, there's a freedom, things are, things are released, you know. And so beauty in any shape or form can be really totally felt without a shying away from, like, oh, I shouldn't feel this because it's going to pass. It's going to pass. Feel it, you know. Feel it. Also because, you know, this predicament that we're naming, things being un impermanent, uncertain, the mind needs to be refreshed. It's extremely important that the mind is refreshed and so that the mind can touch beauty in a wholesome way, in a, in a way that is not entangling but liberating. But, you know, it's important to take in nature, to... 
you know, sh uh, cherish connections, friend friendships, and things like this because they nurture the mind. They, 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 they help the mind. They sustain, nourish the mind so that we can turn around again and say, like, oh, and this is vanishing. You know. So there's this dance of nourishing the mind and then bringing in courage and refreshment so that we can look at what's difficult. If we're just with what's difficult, it's draining. We would lose ground, you know, we would uh, collapse inwardly. So the practitioner has to be really, uh, really good at actually tuning in and feeling uh, what is, uh, you know, helpful, beautiful, uh, uh, enlivening, uh, touching, yeah. actually a skill to direct attention you know when you s you're listen to all the news and then you have a fight with uh, your neighbor or your whoever you know and then uh, 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 then at some point it's like hey we need to refresh this mind you know because it's uh, like you don't go back to the news channel you know like you have to actually to stay efficient connected to contribute you know you you don't want to keep bringing the mind and the heart down. You know, you have to refresh it. It's not avoidance, it's skillfulness. To say, let me refresh the mind so then I can actually talk about what's happening in the world or to the climate or something like this. I, like, I don't stay stuck in there because then I'll just be worried and down and there's nothing I can... My energy is going to drain, you know. me in teaching there's, 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 it's very strange but there's nothing I think I like to talk more about than this because I think it's so real it's so real and you know that I'm in a prison or in a corporate setting in the east or the west of town in uh, this country or another one I know I know that for everyone in the room or tell me if I'm mistaken, but for everyone in the room, there's this experience of uh, being sometimes separated from what we want, and sometimes having to deal with what we don't want. That's part of this life, and that it's actually good to name it. I used to think it was my fault, you know, that others, it worked for them, but I somehow was not the chosen one by some god or some something, you know, that was cursed and said, or it was my fault, that was bad, you know. And then when I heard this truth for me it was liberating, I was like, Oh, it's a universal experience. Or it's not somebody else's fault. I always think it's my or somebody else's fault. It's it's not anybody's fault. It's the nature of this reality. It just has its own rule that doesn't fit what a human being would want or expect, you know. And also that we can all wake up to this together. To me, I feel how it brings compassion. It's like, wow, I want to take care of people. Because they are, like me, separated from what they want a lot. They're, and we're confused about this. It's surprising, it's shocking a lot of the time. How could that have happened? Like, you know, how could this person die? You know, like, it doesn't make sense. I'll, Somehow we know everybody dies and we never nobody knows when somebody's gonna die, but still we're shocked by that. We just 
to me, it reveals the level of our confusion, but not in a judgmental way. It's like, wow, we, are, we don't get it deeply. We don't get it because we're still very shocked by it. So we assumed permanence. We didn't, we didn't totally understand impermanence. We assumed permanence. We read, we perceive permanence, and then we're shocked that things are impermanent. You know, we're shocked because we see ourselves uh, aging or because suddenly we get a diagnosis. It just, we're shocked. I think many of us are or will be when these things happen. Not for everything, but for that one thing. And usually it's actually it, hidden until it reveals it, until it, it disappears. You know? And then how we had projected applied on it permanence, solidity, satisfaction, uh, duration, you know, control. You know, and suddenly we're all like, completely mixed up. It's actually good to work on this early, earlier in the process. Yeah? Not easy. Hmm. So maybe let's take just a few minutes to let this sink in or move out or whatever you want it to do. One other expression maybe of dukkha is that nothing can be owned, appropriated. And so as you sit here, maybe you can see if you can let this sink in, that it's not possible to own these sensations. They're known, they pass through but they're not actually completely ours. These sounds are not ours. This hearing is not ours. It just happened to happen. It's not us. It's not ours. This heartbeat not yours or you. In an absolute sense. It is there. It is really happening. Even this consciousness now, knowing what is happening, feeling the temperature, agitation, or the sadness, or the calm, this knowing mind, this awareness. The 
Buddha said, can't be owned totally. Is happening really is really there, but cannot be absolutely claimed as I or mine. this truth of uh, dukkha uh, be able in time with practice to bring deep, deep release, surrender, ease, and the greatest uh, happiness, which is peace, peace with the world as it is. Thank you so much for your consideration. Thank you. Thank you. And hopefully this was liberating more than entangling. <laughs> but that would be the goal here. Um, oh, just a little uh, note here. Uh, it might interest some of you. Uh, Judson, uh, Dr. Judson Brewer is going to come in town as an American neuropsychiatrist who studies the mind, uh, particularly lately the nature of addiction. He has a lot of findings around this. And he's going to come for our organization called the True North Insight. Many of you know this organization. Anyway, we were doing a fundraiser, and he, uh, he accepted to come to Montreal and give a one-night conference and a day-long. And yesterday I was uh, seeing uh, a good friend, a teacher of mindfulness, and uh, uh, also doctor and uh, professor of mindfulness, and uh, the first thing he told me uh, was, uh, wow, like I can't wait for it. I think he actually knew the date. It was like, I can't wait for November 21 when Dr. Brewer is going to be here. Like, I so want to hear him. And I was like, oh, great, good. <laughs> you just gave me my uh, way to talk about, the, 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 about uh, him coming to Montreal. It's actually... Uh, Joseph uh, Goldstein, my teacher, and uh, uh, is also his teacher. And Joseph always has good things to say about uh, Judson's mind, you know. And so we'll have the chance maybe to sit and hear. So all the science stuff that I know nothing about, and maybe the Joans either. I don't know how good you are in that field, but I'm zero. But he's, he puts the same uh, teachings in the through the science of the brain. So it's. Very interesting to see the research, and uh, it's a completely different language about the exact same practice, and so uh, so it's interesting. You can find the information on the True North Insight uh, website. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.